everybody, and welcome to the seventh episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Matthew, co-host of the Audio Judo podcast, the parent show to this spin-off limited series podcast. Both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you're interested in any genre of music, you need to check out Pantheon. I guarantee you'll be able to find a podcast that interests you. Please go to pantheonpodcasts.com for a full list of their offerings. On this episode, your host Chris talks about the saxophonist and composer Sonny Rollins. I think Chris is about to enter a period on this program of names that I'm less familiar with, so I'm very intrigued about this part. Uh, I do know that of the artists that Chris has spoken about up until this point, this is the first one who is actually still alive. So meet me here after for some album recommendations, but now, the squeaking and the squawking. Here's your host, Chris. It's 1994, about 10 minutes before my comparative film studies class. Scorsese and Jonathan Demme had a remarkably parallel career in their choices in filmmaking. I'm sitting in my normal chair in the auditorium waiting for the teacher to start so he can put on Stop Making Sense for tonight's movie. And I've got to listen to some jackass talking about his favorite jazz artist. You know the type. I love the sound of Sonny Rollins' horn, he says. It just sounds so melodious. The man is perfect. The music soars. You know, a lot of people say Coltrane's the guy, but I gotta go with Rollins, he goes on. I can't stand all of Coltrane's squeaks and squawks. Squeaks and squawks? Squeaks and squawks? Them's fighting words. My jaw tightened. My hands began to sweat. I sized the guy up, just in case we had to throw down. He's shorter than me, wears glasses, isn't quite pudgy, but definitely not athletic. I think I could take him. I am not going to let him get away with this. You cannot reduce my favorite artist, the man whose horn brings me closer to God than anything else on earth, to squeaks and squawks. You can't talk about an artist whose trajectory and skill and exploration rose exponentially from 1955 through 1965 and went even further out than anyone else around and get away with it? They have a church of St. John Coltrane out in San Francisco, for Christ's sakes. You can't talk like that about a saint. And who is Sonny Rollins anyway, I thought. Then I heard another voice. Tonight's movie will be Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, a concert film he directed for a band called The Talking Heads. Let's compare and contrast this one with Scorsese's The Last Waltz from the other night, shall we? That guy's ass. Saved by the bell, I thought. My seething lessened as the talking heads put on a great show. Some of those songs were so upbeat and catchy, it surprised me that no one got up and danced around. Even if you only know a song or two by the band, I highly recommend watching that movie for purely joyous reasons. By the end of the movie... I'd completely forgotten about my anger. And then, Mr. Squeaks and Squawks stood up to leave. While my anger had dissipated, I thought of pulling him aside to give him a piece of my mind. But, like so many other opportunities I've had to speak up, I just let it go. Who am I kidding? And what was I thinking? Going to fight a guy over an opinion about one guy's music? 
No fight took place that night. But one thing was for sure, I thought. Screw Sonny Rollins and his melodious saxophone playing. Who needs him? Still, I did have Rollins' saxophone colossus on my list of five-star albums I had to pick up. But after that, who needed him? Well, I also had to pick up the album The Bridge because of the story behind it. What with its mythical aspects and everything. We all need some mythical mysticism in our lives. But after that, who needs Sonny Rollins? After those two records, and only those two records, I'd be done with them. I'd show that jackass about squeaks and squawks, which is about the worst attitude one can have when faced with the opportunity of learning something about greatness, beauty, and most of all, yourself. Turns out, Saxophone Colossus lived up to its name and its five-star rating in The Penguin Guide to Jazz. The album is a classic for a number of reasons. Each song is distinctive and different from the one before it. The songs are accessible, and Rounds' playing is majestic. He's got Tommy Flanagan on piano, the inimitable Max Roach on drums, Doug Watkins, one of the only bassists great enough to ever play in a Charles Mingus album, rounded out the record. The song St. Thomas and its Calypso beat is fun and different. Blue Seven is an incredible song. Strode Road is strident and memorable. Moritat, which is German for deadly deed, is basically the song Mac the Knife, but better and 10 minutes long. It's definitely an album worth picking up, a perfect place to start with any Sunny Rounds collection. Once again, I'm not saying there's a cool kit for beginning jazz listeners. But if there were, Saxophone Colossus would be in that group. The album goes a long way in portraying all that you can accomplish with a saxophone and how you can make it sing. St. Thomas, a Calypso number and the opening track from the Saxophone Colossus album. One of those albums that you just might want to give a listen to if you want to start listening to jazz. Born and raised in Harlem in 1930, Sonny Rollins had been given his first alto saxophone at the age of 7 or 8. By the age of 16, he had switched to tenor sax. During high school, he played in a band with a number of future jazz greats, including sax player Jackie McLean, pianist Kenny Drew, and drummer Art Taylor. He has said of those days that Charlie Parker was like a god to him and his friends. It must have been an incredible boost of confidence when he found himself playing on records of Bird's contemporaries, like trumpeter Fats Navarro, pianist Bud Powell, and trombonist J.J. Johnson, while still a teenager. Imagine his shock when, a handful of years later or so, after Bird had passed, that he had the mantle of greatest sax player in the world placed on his shoulders, and everybody spoke in lofty terms about him. I'm not saying it was a headline in the paper or anything, Rollins deemed top sax player, but recording one classic record after another and becoming the most desired sax player for a session, and it happens gradually. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Let's talk about the different strategies I've suggested in approaching the music of some of the artists so far. In the Miles Davis episode, while I attempted to center your focus on four specific records, you could approach Miles' music via all the different periods and genres of his career. With Coltrane, I believe in the one door leads to another approach, showing you what I believe to be the five most accessible doorways into his recorded work. With Mingus, I believed in a linear, ladder-like, merit-based strategy. I just think some of his records are playing better than others. With Monk, I felt you could throw a dart at practically any album, and you're bound to hit a great one to listen to. With Bird, I don't think I gave you any real strategy except to listen to any or all of his early Savoy and Dial recordings. With Sonny, he played with seemingly everybody who was anybody. His recording output is as accessible as anyone's, and he is a nexus in which to branch out to discover other artists. Want to learn about Bud Powell, Fats Navarro, or J.J. Johnson? He shows up in their late 1940s recordings. Would you like to hear what the modern jazz quartet sounds like with Milt Jackson on Vibes? He's the leader on an album with them backing him up in the early 1950s. Miles, Monk, Diz, and Max? Yep, he plays on different records with all of them as well. Quite a few of those albums will be mentioned in this or future episodes. is almost like being in love with Sonny Rollins playing with the modern jazz quartet. For those of you who are interested, that's Milt Jackson, or Bags, playing vibes. In rock and roll history, there are several well-known hot streaks where the artists are on fire. They're seemingly plugged into the center of the cosmos, to the hearts and minds of people, to something indefinably greater out there, where everything they release just sounds great. From 1972 to 1976, Stevie Wonder released five albums, three of which won the Grammy for Album of the Year. Van Morrison had a similar run of five classic albums from 1968 to 1972. No Grammys, though. You could say the Beatles' entire career is one such run from 1963 through 1970. There's Bowie throughout the 70s, Elton John through the first half of the 70s, there are other incredible runs by such artists as The Who, Stones, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and others who have all had a handful of years or so where they couldn't do anything wrong, recording-wise. So far in the series, I've talked about Miles Davis recording four classic albums over two days, Coltrane recording three classic albums over the course of a week, Mingus winning 1959 with four classic albums recorded over the course of that year. While I only count 16... One article I read online stated that Sonny Rollins released 17 albums between 1956 and 1958 as a leader, and 12 of them were Stone Cold Classics. There's an interview where Sonny talks about trying to tap into his subconscious, and he says that's what you strive for every time you play. I wonder if he lived in his subconscious for a few years there. Telling you every classic album he plays on in the 1950s will be the equivalent of me highlighting an entire book because I thought each line or thought was important. My job is not to overwhelm you. 
My job is to guide you into a place where you feel comfortable. As we're just starting out here, I'm going to utilize a quick and painless tier system. First tier, my favorites. Saxophone Colossus, Tour de Force, and Moving Out. Second tier, which are, without a doubt, a number of great albums and accessible to anyone's ears. The Sound of Sonny, Sonny Rollins, Volume 2 on the Blue Note label, Live at the Village Vanguard, and The Bridge. And the third tier, anything else you recorded in the 1950s. Just feel free to explore. There's no way of telling you which ones you like more than the others. Again, that's just for starters. He did record into the 2000s, so there's a whole lot of history to cover if you want to. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. That was Be Quick from the album Tour de Force, with Sonny and Max Roach sprinting to the end of the song, and Max absolutely pounding the crap out of the drums. Tour de Force, like Saxophone Colossus, lives up to its name. If you like to hear saxophone players endlessly skipping notes across the surface of water, this is the record for you. If you like to hear hard-driving, fast and elegant music, this is the record for you. If you want to hear music that makes you drive faster than you ought to, with an, oh my God, there's a cop over there, I hope he didn't notice I was going 25 miles per hour over the speed limit, I hope he doesn't pull me over, why did I have to listen to Sonny Rounds in the car today, but oh, the music's so good kind of feeling, then this is the album for you. Now, there are four songs in here that describe that exact scenario. Ea, Be Quick, Be Swift, and a CD bonus track called Sunny Boy. I swear to you that the only difference between Be Quick and Be Swift is that Max Roach pounds the drums with only slightly less thunder on Be Swift. These two musicians complement each other so well. And if this album doesn't make you want to listen to Max Roach some more, I don't know what will. While I have opened up lately to vocalists and some of the songs of the day I post on Facebook, This album serves as another reminder as to why I didn't like vocalists getting in the way in the first place. Earl Coleman. I don't know if you would describe his voice as being like butter, or two sticks of butter, or silky smooth, or with the touch of molasses, but it just doesn't work for me. It's distracting. Sorry, Earl. Moving Out is another one of my favorite Sonny Rollins albums. The first two tracks, Moving Out and Swinging for Bumsy, are a couple of up-tempo burners that I just marvel at. How can anyone just do that? He's so fast, so inventive, and not a single note sounds out of place. I'd really love to talk to a musician in order to see if what Rollins is doing is more a trick of a sleight-of-hand musician, or is he a true sorcerer? Because he sounds amazing. Author and musician Peter Nicholas Wilson, who wrote Sonny Rollins' The Definitive Musical Guide, 
called the album simply a typical blowing session in which virtuoso up-tempo playing in a wealth of invention in a well-known framework count for more than structural innovation. I don't know what the hell that means, but it sounds like bullshit. This album is aces, if you ask me. I'm sure Peter Nicholas Wilson knows infinitely more about Sonny Rounds and being a musician more than I ever will. But it doesn't mean he's right. Give this album a listen. Let me know what you think. The song from the album I'm going to play for you is called Silk and Satin. With absolute minimal backing, he takes you on a journey of some romantic encounter, full of complications and negotiations with himself and his heart. There's a photograph taken in 1958 on 126th Street between 5th and Madison Avenues in Harlem. 57 jazz musicians showed up for the 10 o'clock in the morning photo shoot for Esquire magazine. Perhaps the greatest assemblage of musical talent the jazz world has ever known showed up that morning. It's a minor miracle, really, that anyone showed up, as jazz musicians didn't tend to wake up in the morning for anybody having gone to sleep at three or four or five the night before. The importance of the event has been captured in a documentary released in 1994 called A Great Day in Harlem. I will have a link to that documentary in my notes. I highly recommend it to anyone who has an interest in jazz, in history, or in photography. While the Ken Burns 10-episode, 19-hour-long documentaries, simply called Jazz, released in 2001, is epic in sweep, in detail, in anecdotes, in precious black and white footage, and is steeped in music and history within the context of Burns' view of America. Or, as critics have often noted, Wynton Marsalis's narrow view of jazz, it's not actually all that much fun or lively. You would think a documentary about jazz would be more fun. Well-written, well-researched, comprehensive, and thorough, up to a point, there's a lot of information for you. On the other hand, A Great Day in Harlem has vigor. It's entertaining. It's fun. Many of the musicians who were still alive in 1994 had been interviewed for the doc. They provided a lot of interesting anecdotes about the day itself and about the other musicians in general. Now, I read the Iliad once, half a lifetime ago, and I probably missed a lot of important subtext and context and Probably just a whole lot of text. I've forgotten a lot of the story. Like many things, I'm no expert. But one of the reasons I loved it at the time is regardless of how small a character would be in the grand scheme of things, upon entering the epic, that character had been given a story. He had been given enough of a history, a lineage, or a character trait to be a full human being. A great day in Harlem does the same. Not all 57 musicians are given a whole lot of background, but I learned enough about them to want to get to know them better. 
Musicians like clarinetist Pee Wee Russell, trumpet player Rex Stewart, stride piano players Lucky Roberts and Willie the Lion Smith. If you want to learn more about jazz, its history, and its musicians, and you've only got an hour on your hands, I can think of no better place to start than by watching A Great Day in Harlem. So why do I bring the documentary up in the Sonny Rollins episode of my podcast? Well, Sonny Rollins is one of two people in the photograph still alive. I believe the secret as to why might be in what happens next. As I mentioned to you earlier, between 1956 and 1958, Rollins released about 16 or so albums under his own name. He recorded with the Clifford Brown Max Roach Quintet. He recorded with Monk and Dizzy and Kenny Dorham. You could argue that, at this time, he was the greatest saxophone player in the world. He was in high demand. He was at the top of his game. Not longer after he made his first tour of Europe in 1959, he stopped his career. Frustrated with what he perceived as his own limitations, he stopped recording, he stopped gigging, and he just left. Not the first artist to do so, nor had he been the last. The question is why. Going into this series, I wondered if it had anything to do with the entry of Ornette Coleman onto the New York scene in 1959. Chronologically, as it turns out, he stopped months before Coleman came to New York. However, Rollins did practice with Ornette out in Los Angeles in 1957, so he knew what Coleman was capable of doing. Furthermore, Coltrane had progressed by leaps and bounds over the course of the last several years, and he continued to do so. Perhaps Sonny Rollins knew where jazz was going. Perhaps he didn't think he had what it took to get there. I've listened to a number of interviews with Rollins, and he kind of has a different shade of an answer every time he's asked through the years. I'm sure he's sick of people asking him. The best I can ascertain is that he didn't really feel like he was able to put out what people expected of him. There had been too much hype around him, and he didn't feel like what people said of him is equal to what he played. In an interview he did after he retired, he simply said he needed a place to practice, to work on things. Ralph Burton, a jazz writer, caught Rollins practicing at the Williamsburg Bridge in the summer of 1961. He wrote a short story for Metronome magazine about this encounter, changing his name to the fictitious Buster Jones and moving the story from the Williamsburg Bridge to the Brooklyn Bridge in order to give Sonny the privacy he required. This all added to the myth. Rollins' departure from the scene is one of the biggest mythical moments in all of jazz history. It ranks right up there with Charlie Parker having the symbol thrown at him inspiring him to play better, right up there with Paul Gonsalves's 27 choruses in the song Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue that he played at Newport in 1956 with the Duke Ellington Band. It's right up there with Miles Davis changing the course of jazz history on a weekend around the time of Woodstock, adding rock and roll elements to his music and creating jazz fusion. I'm not going to say it's like Jesus going out into the desert for a while, It's not like Robert Johnson's supposed deal with the devil at the crossroads, but Rollins did practice up to 15 to 16 hours a day, no matter the weather, 
no matter the season. He got stronger, began practicing yoga. I've been told that it helped with his improvisational skills, and that certainly stands to reason. But I think what it did the most for him is that it probably cleared his head. Rock and roll history has a litany of stories of people who weren't able to handle the trappings of fame or wealth or power. Jazz history as well had a number of casualties. Though very few actually obtained power, and it didn't translate into being able to pay the bills much either. Still, fame, expectations, and not making enough to make ends meet takes its toll on you. I don't know any famous people. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who's the greatest in the world at anything. Not since my dad passed, and he was the greatest at everything he did. I know several incredible accountants where I work. I have a couple of friends who are great writers. I even know a couple of great podcasters. I know several people who are well-informed and well-read, and a friend from high school with a photographic memory who could tell me the day we had various conversations 30-odd years ago. But when fame or power or wealth or even too much attention is heaped on anyone, it changes them in a fundamental way, especially if they don't have a good support system. This country is obsessed by those exact values, fame, power, wealth, attention. They warp our perceptions of ourselves and what's important. It's hard for people to tell the difference between fact and fiction. It's hard to reconcile what they see versus how they feel. We certainly don't need any more people saying, look at me. Certainly not our so-called leaders. Look at me is something kids do when they want their parents to pay attention to them. I remember one kid saying that incessantly poolside years ago, jumping in and wanting someone, anyone to pay attention to him. Never thought we would have people running the country doing the exact same thing on a daily basis, looking for ratings, looking for approval. Sonny Rollins saw the difference between what people told him he was and what he saw in the mirror and decided to take a step back. He saw the difference between what he could do and where jazz was going, and he decided to see if he could make up the difference. While his comeback album, The Bridge, didn't initially knock me out, it's still great, and it's still Sonny Rollins. Without a Song is one of his more beautiful recordings. One of the first things you notice that's different is that he has a guitarist playing with him on this record, Jim Hall. Hall's playing is tasty throughout, and it adds a new color in Rollins's discography. without a song, the opening track to the Bridge album. I want to say this carefully and respectfully. Artistically, I'm not going to pretend to understand what he accomplished up there on that bridge over a couple years or so. That's between him, God, 
and whoever happened to be listening at the time. I don't know what he discovered about himself or about his playing. To my layman's ears, it doesn't sound like his playing afterwards broke any new ground. How do you improve upon perfection? Maybe what he realized is that the only way forward was to be himself. The only way to progress was to do what he did best. I understand that in his live recordings, perhaps, his sound changed a little. It expanded songs often, if not always, to 10 or 20 minutes long. However, in the studio in the 1960s, he doesn't sound all too different than he did before. It does sound like the musicians around him gave him a different context in which to be heard than what he played in the 1950s. Not every jazz release sounded like the cutting-edge, free-form music of Coltrane, Archie Shep, Pharaoh Sanders, and others. In 1969, he began another two-year sabbatical from jazz. This time, he went to India. He said about that time, I'd been interested in metaphysical organizations in things like Buddhism, yoga, and Sufism. I felt like I needed to get more into self-improvement and the greater purposes and meaning of life. I had been investigating yoga since the 50s, so I had been primed to make this voyage. He said, I have a lot of trouble meditating. A lot of these practices have to do with meditating and trying to get away from ordinary life. The Swami said, Well, Sonny, when you're playing your horn, you're meditating. It seems like it might be obvious, but some of these things, even though they seem to be so plain, you need something to sort of light them up. He started recording again in 1972. Now, I've only listened to a handful of records from the 70s, but he recorded for 30 more years. There's no way I can possibly single out anything for you. Some of the material I've heard is good, some of it not so much. I think it's mathematical. I think it comes down to the law of diminishing returns. In this sense, he reminds me a bit of Paul McCartney. I don't know that Paul McCartney has much more than a handful of essential recordings in the last 40 years or so. There are just so many songs to stack his current material up against. However, there are a good three to five songs worth listening to on each release, worth adding to the canon. I imagine with all of Sonny's recordings, there's a fraction of each record that will delight you. That was the song I Feel a Song coming on off of the Sonny Rollins Plus Four album. The Plus Four referring to the remaining members of the Clifford Brown Max Roach Quintet, which Sonny was a member of at the time. From what I gather, I Feel a Song coming on is a Judy Garland song. You will find that Rollins chooses a lot of show tunes and pop songs of the day to record in order to do his own take. In 2012, he retired from playing due to respiratory issues. In an interview he did a few years ago with David Marchese, he reflected on the end of his career. When asked whether he achieved everything he wanted to achieve in his playing, he said, Oh, I got there. When I was working regularly out of a year, I get maybe two performances where I felt like I was able to play everything that came into my mind. Man, those nights were great. I haven't made a lot of records which I thought were really like that. But in performance, I did reach the peak of what I could do on rare occasions. 
And reaching the peak always means you can still go so much higher. Do you know what I mean? My God, based on what we do have of his recordings, what more did he want out of them? About his end goals, he said, My thing, my burden, my life, was that I had to stop blowing my horn, so I never got to the musical place I wanted to get to. I believe in reincarnation, so I also believe that I'll have another opportunity to get it, whatever it was, and in whatever new situation arises. I'm not unhappy about the fact that I couldn't reach the brass ring in this life. He said, Everyone has the capacity to work on those things, whether it's getting mad too fast or getting better at your horn. If you seriously try to correct your faults, then the universe will do its part. It will take you in. If we only had as much trust in ourselves and in each other, perhaps the universe could help us solve some of the problems we face these days. Let's do our part. Let's not spend so much time pointing out everyone else's faults, and let's try correcting our own. There are too many fingers pointing outward out there, not enough mirrors looking back at ourselves. God bless you. All my love, Chris. And that is Sonny Rollins. Thanks, Chris. As a side note, anyone that gets to play themselves on an episode of The Simpsons instantly gets legendary status. Chris divided his recommendations this week into three tiers, and here they are. The first tier, Saxophone Colossus, Tour de Force, and Moving Out. Second tier, The Sound of Sonny, Sonny Rollins Volume 2 on Blue Note Records, Live at the Village Vanguard, and The Bridge. Third tier, everything else he recorded in the 1950s, including Nuke's Time and Freedom Suite. Uh, albums he also recommends that he played on with other people are Dig with Miles Davis, Bags Groove with Miles Davis, Monk with Thelonious Monk, Thelonious Monk and Sonny Rollins with Thelonious Monk, and Clifford Brown and Max Roach at Basin Street with Clifford Brown and the Max Roach Quintet. Pick up one of those, give it a listen, drop us a line, and tell us what you think. The website is www.audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. On Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash Audiojudo Does Jazz. Twitter at Audiojudo Jazz. Or you can email at jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email chris at C H R I S at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding some non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more of those at audiojudo.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.